Welcome to Launchpad, the unique radio show and podcast that celebrates new book releases and the authors that created them. Now, let's take off with your host, Grace Salmon. This is Launchpad. I'm so excited everybody is here. This is episode 31 with Gabby Coatsworth, Joe Ivestern, Teresa H. Jansen, and Lynn Spriggs O'Connor. This show is being recorded in front of a live audience, so if you are joining us live, please feel free to join in in the chat, ask questions of our authors, because in this episode, we will be going from the perfect English cottage to the most rural of ranches, from the boom and bust of the American West to social rights, advocacy, and we're asking you to join these authors for memoir, historical fiction, a husband's ghost, a search for the meaning of family, and for the human spirit. We'll talk about all of this and so much more as you find your next favorite book here on Launchpad. I want to welcome each of our authors today and start out with Gabby Coatsworthy, who's just written a, no a novel called A Beginner's Guide to Starting Over, Joe Iverston with her family memoir, Never a Girl, Always a Boy, Teresa H. Jansen with The Ways of Water, a novel, and last but not least, Lynn Spriggs O'Connor with him, her memoir, Elk Love, a Montana memoir. Welcome to each of you. Thanks. Thanks Thank for you. having us. And welcome to our Facebook listeners. Here we are on Bookish Road Trip, and soon we will be aired on Global's, uh, Authors on the Air, Global Radio Network. Gabby Coatsworth, let's start with you and your fiction, A Beginner's Guide <clears throat> to Starting Over. Tell us about it. This is my book, and uh, it's about a sort of middle-aged widow who owns a bookstore. This is her wicked landlord who's trying to put her out of business. Uh, and this is the ghost of her late husband who shows up to try and help her out, especially with some online dating. He says he's going to find her a replacement who's not quite as good as him, but will do. <laughs> and he turns out to be dreadful at it. So briefly, that's, that's it. Well, we, we go from a fiction to a very real family memoir. Joe Iverson, tell us about Never a Girl, Always a Boy. Well, thanks for including me today, Grace. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here to meet my fellow authors. Um, my book that I'll be talking about, we'll get it centered here, Never a Girl, Always a Boy. And this picture of this uh, very handsome young man is my son, Jeremy. And um, 33 years ago, when Jeremy was born, my husband and I mistakenly welcomed him into the world as what we thought was our daughter. And we were wrong. Uh, Jeremy has always been our son. We didn't know it. When he was a child, we called him a tomboy. That's what he called himself. And he was going through stuff that we didn't know about and couldn't support as a result. He knew he was loved, but not understood either by himself or by us. In his mid-20s, he started figuring things out. He had top surgery to flatten out his chest. He went on hormones, it reduced his, lowered his voice, gave him some facial hair, and he um, adopted the name Jeremy. And it has been fantastic over the last 10 years to watch him flourish once he figured out who he is. And the memoir tells not just his story, but the whole family and our um, growing awareness of what it means to be an advocate for our own son. 
a fascinating story and so timely now. So thank you for telling it. Let's move over to Teresa H. Jansen and her novel, The Ways of Water. Well, hello. Uh, here's the cover of my book. It is historical fiction. It is a coming of age story that was inspired by my family history as well, my grandmother's girlhood. On the cover is my great aunt on a journey through the Southwest. <clears throat> uh, when unforeseeable uh, events occurred, and this is early 1900s, my grandmother was on her own. She journeyed a, truly an odyssey of self-discovery through uh, New Mexico, where uh, she was initially a child, through Arizona, uh, and eventually arriving in California, and where she must uh, make peace with the past and reunite the family she loves. Oh, sounds beautiful. And you talk about the part of New Mexico, which brings us almost for, from a New Yorker's view to Lynn Spriggs O'Connor, <laughs> New Mexico, Montana. Tell us Lynn Spriggs O'Connor about Elk Love, a Montana memoir. There you go. 20 years ago, a museum curator, uh, single and in her early forties realized I can't do this anymore. And she made a radical decision to leave everything behind, including a fast paced life in Atlanta, academic training, a job in a big museum to move, reset her life in rural Montana. And she chose Montana because of 10 earlier summers that she spent on a Blackfeet Indian reservation there, on the Blackfeet Indian reservation there. And Elk Love begins, it opens one year after that move. So she's still grappling with uh, culture shock of her decision, but she suddenly finds herself alone on a very isolated ranch with her dog, a very unusual man, uh, a wild her herd of elk, about 200 elk, and horses and cattle and strange birds. And in the deep silence of that unfamiliar territory, that, that environment, she was able for the first time in her life to listen to all sorts of languages that were completely unfamiliar. And the relationships, those relationships in nature began schooling her about very different things, like the intimacy of, un, of not knowing about things that are mysterious and invisible in our lives, and a whole lot about what matters most in life. Oh, each of your books sounds so great. I love the idea that we have so many people joining us here on Facebook from New Jersey, from Pennsylvania, from many places. Um, and I'm happy to have each of our viewers. So again, to our viewers um, and listeners, please feel free to ask questions and make comments. <clears throat> One of the things that I was struck with in each of your books, even though they go from historical fiction to uh, more modern day fiction to memoirs, there's really a sense of that searching for identity, that um, really trying to find an authentic self, if you will. So I'd like to start out with Joe there, because that's perhaps the most dramatic shift or the most visibly dramatic shift. So let's go back to that search for identity, because it's not only Jeremy's identity there, right? It's your family's identity. Sure. In a way, his coming out was a coming out for all of us. And I really like that you're asking us all the question about identity, because so often we think of it as something that is um, 
just having to do with the transgender world, figuring out my gender identity. But the journey is so similar in, in many ways, figuring out who you are. It's a human story. It is overcoming challenges. It is having other people see you as you see yourself and figuring out how do I see myself and who am I? And those are universal questions. That's not just a question for a transgender person. And part of why I, I wanted to write this book was so that folks could realize that being transgender, being part of a family that has a transgender family member in it is perfectly normal. And we, we are just people. We are a loving family with all the challenges that every family faces. We just happen to have a transgender family member. So I very much appreciate the question and, and how you've addressed it to all of us. Well, it's interesting. I just, um, on my other radio show, The Storytellers, interviewed Lori Frankel, who wrote a fabulous book called This Is How It Always Is, which is about her, tra it's a novel, but uh, she also has a transgender child. And her, her premise is, this is how it always is. Every family is looking for something, for identity, and to be that authentic self, which brings me to Gabby, because her character um, is really looking to find out if she has the courage to fight for herself and what is her identity. So pick up on that identity question, please, Gabby. Well, uh, I'm a widow, and one of the things that happens to many widows, I think, is that you suddenly lose part of your identity. Um, now you've got that label that says widow and people start to treat you a little differently. For example, my friends were saying things like, so when are you going to start dating again? This is pretty soon after. And they were saying, um, what do you think happens to people if after they die if you don't think they go to heaven? And my answers were never again as far as dating was concerned. And um, I think that you carry these people with you always. So that's how this novel started. And as I was trying to find my identity, Molly was trying to find hers. And what she had to learn, and I think I had to learn too, was that I could not and didn't have to do everything by myself. I could ask for help. I could get help from the wonderful Women's Fiction Writers Association who, you know, introduced me to a whole lot of new writer friends and so on. And Molly has to do the same thing. And then she has to know also which help not to take, including Simon's help, because it's not very good, her dead husband. So. <laughs> oh, Teresa, in your book, The Meaning of the Ways of Water, um, you have your characters have to make uh, peace with the past, but they're also looking for that meaning of the human spirit. So would you carry us f further on our talk about identity? Yes, I think there's similar themes with both Joe's and Gabby's uh, characters. Uh, from the age of 15, she's on her own, and she has to, in a man's world, in the early West, and she has to uh, find her own place and her own identity. Uh, and like the others, uh, she has many barriers to that. Uh, she has many hardships. She goes through World War I, the influenza pandemic. And... Uh, through them all, she's tried. And she comes out from it uh, with a clearer vision. And, and, and one of the other things that occurs at the end is uh, women's rights. Uh, the women just get the vote in the early 20s at the end of the book. And she sees herself as a, a revitalized, vibrant woman in a new world. 
And um, so that theme of discovery, self-discovery runs through the novel. Thank you. Lynn, you alluded to this already in your discussion about um, Elk Love, a Montana memoir. But let's talk about that finding yourself by listening to language, if you will. Hmm. Um, I'd lived a life, as we all live, in this human existence that is very complex and uh, can be everything in the full spectrum from tender to uh, vulnerable to betrayal and painful and suffering, all the rest that we get to live through in our lives. Um, and I had gotten to a point in my own life, being in my early 40s and having been single my entire life, as Gabby was saying, um, I had been brought up with the idea that I had to do everything independently, uh, not rely on anyone and um, not necessarily fully trust anyone. And it, it just got too hard. We're just not wired that way, ultimately. I had, in many ways, a tremendous uh, early adulthood being on my own because there's great freedom involved with that, right? I could follow my bliss everywhere, anywhere I wanted, live in lots of different places. But it got to the point where I just, I couldn't keep up the, the public persona and I needed to just escape. And I decided on Montana in large part because it had two things that I was really looking for. I wanted to be able to see the beauty in myself and I wanted to feel the spaciousness inside myself, inside my heart, inside my life. And I wanted to put myself in a, in a physical um, landscape that would constantly be reflecting those things back to me and maybe hopefully teach me to uh, open to those ideas about myself and, and my life. Oh, that's really yes. beautiful. I, I saw Joe really resonated, seems, with this idea of finding the beauty within ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe, you had talked a little bit about how in seeing Jeremy's transition and the family's transition, uh, you used the word, I think, blossomed. Yes. Uh, Talk about the transformation of a family and a community, if you can expand beyond that. I'm sure you share that in your book, Never a Girl, Always a Boy. Sure. Well, Jeremy and Lynn, I, I loved your description of Montana as a place for, for finding the beauty that you're seeing outside in the space outside and seeing it in yourself. I mean, that's, what I was, that's what I was really smiling at. I, it's I a challenge. Description. Um, so, so Jeremy was a happy kid, and I don't mean to say that he was, you know, full of angst from the time he was a little one because of what's called gender dysphoria, which is that sense that mm -hmm. you get when who you know yourself to be inside is different from what society, probably in the form of a of a physician, has written on your birth certificate. So it's called gender dysphoria. And Jeremy didn't, it wasn't obvious because he just accepted who he was. So he's this happy little kid who just <laughs> happened to prefer all the things that our society has defined as male. And I hate those stereotypes. And as a child of the 60s, my feeling was I want to put everything on the table for all my kids. Boys can play with dolls. Girls can play with trucks. I loved playing football. 
Um, so we didn't really think twice about it when Jeremy always leaned toward what our society defined as masculine. And he was happy, had his group of friends, played football, and then puberty hit. And that's when all of a sudden things didn't work. He felt like his body just wasn't doing what he wanted it to do. And none of us had the awareness that folks have today of alternatives, that you can you can pause puberty and not go through the wrong puberty. If we'd been able to do that, mm. he avoided surgery, for example. Um, he could have had the teenage years that you want your kids to have. He could have had that happiness. And instead, he didn't, and we didn't even know it. Hmm. And he buried himself in um, artistic work, in musical work, in, in sports. He played every sport he could think of. So we saw a busy kid and didn't realize he didn't even know the names of the other kids on his teams because he felt so far removed from them because mm -hmm. it wasn't right to be playing girls' sports for him. So when at 23, he started talking about, you know, here's the exploration I'm on. Here are some videos you should watch by other people um, that have been through this journey and can be my role models. That's when the flourishing started. So <laughs> we hadn't even realized he wasn't happy. Well, flourishing is so important, and I think both Gabby and Teresa's characters do just that. Gabby, let's go back to your book, A Beginner's Guide to Starting Over. And your character has, um, she is working at flourishing for sure, even with a meddlesome uh, spouse. <laughs> she she is, uh, somewhat reluctantly, I think, to begin with, as uh, I, I know that I resist change unless it's my own idea. If someone thrusts change upon me, I will dig my heels in and try not to. But uh, if I think it's my idea, I find it easier. And eventually, of course, if other people are being insistent, I come to think it's my idea. I think we've all had this experience of persuading someone that it's their idea that we should go to Nepal on vacation, whatever it might be. Anyway, um, so yes, so Molly doesn't really want to change, but she does need to save her bookstore from this awful landlord, to not date him because he's putting fake photos of himself up online on the online dating sites and hoping that he can snare her that way in addition to trying to ruin her life. And um, she's trying to do it independently, but the big change for her is, is coming to understand that yes, it's still her who's in charge of her life but if she's doing it with friends, it doesn't mean that she's not doing it. She is still making these changes and they are helping and supporting her. Or she's telling them, no, I don't need that kind of support. I need this. And that's how she finds herself in the end and ends up with confidence, a new business partner. Ooh, shouldn't say. No, and, spoiler alert. <laughs> It's all right. We won't spoil it too much. Um, and a life that she's starting to enjoy again, instead of just sort of pushing through because of a great change. And I think all all our books sound as if they were um, inspired by a great and sudden unwanted change in people's lives, mm -hmm. um, which pushed them forward. So well, let's. Um, 
Yeah. Let's carry that question directly back to Teresa, because I think, you know, her characters go through so much, you know, they have survival guilt, they have to make peace with the past. So Teresa, let's carry this theme forward with your book. Well, that's a great segue, uh, Gabby, like your character. I, I compared uh, Josie's journey. She's a spunky, active uh, young woman, but uh, brought against circumstances that are almost beyond her, her power to, to assuage. But I compare it to it, her going down a whitewater river. So uh, it's uh, wild things are being uh, brought to her, but she still uses her gumption and her, her the skills she has at hand uh, to, to survive this journey. And like the river, um, the theme of water runs through the whole book. And you'll notice uh, on the cover, uh, <clears throat> it's a desert scene. There was no water, uh, but nonetheless, it just shows the uh, fluidity of water as it goes through her life. So she starts out in the, the dearth of water in the desert, and uh, she's controlled by her father's work, which makes them an itinerant family because of the insatiable thirst of the steam, steam locomotives at the time. Uh, and later, uh, you know, we, we see the damming, uh, the first dam put in the Rio Grande, and she, the family sees personal effects, what happens when you try to stop up a river and remodel uh, the environment. And it, it goes on from there. She eventually finds herself uh, at the Pacific. But truly, she was uh, quite the protagonist, but couldn't have achieved what she did without the help of others. And that that brings in also what Gabby was saying about uh, she she needed community and she made friendships in order to find her way. So I appreciate each of those answers. I also want to get to one of our viewers who wants to know, all of your books sound wonderful. What do you find most enjoyable about the process of creating a story? And do you have any advice for aspiring writers? Lynn, let's start with you. Your book was a few years in the making. A few, 12 years in the making. Um, maybe I'll connect those two in terms of blossoming and um, and what I would uh, tell people about re what they would read with my book. It was really a matter of finding wonder through curiosity and, and always acting, trying to act with a sense of reciprocity. In the book itself, um, my character is uh, growing and blossoming through this great authenticity that you find in nature. Everything is absolutely itself in this crazy world where there's so much pretense and confusion and distraction. There was nature being completely itself with me. And I so appreciated that. And it helped me to blossom into my own authenticity as part of nature. Um, as well, my love interest in the story really helps me in that regard. And in terms of the process of creating a book, that also was a huge step in terms of becoming myself because I had to move away from scholarly writing, which I'd done in the past, which was all about conceptual, theoretical, analyzing, lots and lots of footnotes. I have a few footnotes in this, but not a lot. But shifting to that personal sense uh, of writing, where it's simply about showing, not telling, what is happening through sensual details, sensory details. And I think readers, hopefully, I'm, I've aimed to bring readers into my body with this book so that they can see what I'm seeing as I see it happen. And they can feel what I'm feeling when it was happening. And um, 
I don't know, the whole act of, of writing this memoir has been a real, um, an act of gathering myself and um, coming to know myself better. And um, it was certainly uh, an experience of transformation. And I hope that that comes across in the book. Wonderful. Joe, what do you feel uh, was most enjoyable about the writing process? And do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Well, I, I would agree with Lynn on everything she said. Um, the one thing I would add as a memoir writer, um, focusing on my own family, is the most joyful part of it was the way it pulled the family together into a tighter bond. Because for me, it was it was family first. I asked Jeremy's permission before starting on the project, and he gave me this wonderful gift of a series of recordings he'd made while transitioning and said I could use them. I had those transcribed. That then became the basis of his voice in the book. And everybody in the family was represented. So there's you might hear the same story from Jeremy and then from me and then from his dad or his brother and mm. you get different perceptions. And as I was working, I would feed the material back to everybody and say, did I capture your voice? Does this feel honest? And in some cases it was, well, it was a little different, but I see where you're coming from. And in other cases it was, oh, that's all wrong. Let's get rid of this, get rid of that. <laughs> and I would be presented with new material. And that was this incredible adventure. And it was, the best part of it was that some stuff had happened that had put up some uh, some barriers um, that, that do get discussed in the book um, between some of the siblings. And in the process of reviewing the material and talking about, well, what really happened? What was intended? What was interpreted? Mm. Everybody came closer together. And Wonderful. so that's a, a power in memoir writing that was unexpected and incredibly joyful. I, I love Launchpad. It's one of the most fun things I do. These are great <laughs> questions and answers. Teresa, what do you find most enjoyable and do you have any advice for aspiring writers? I would say uh, if you feel passion about a particular story, stay with it. Uh, do it. When I went out to um, the Hornada de Moreto, which is the area where my grandmother uh, was a girl, and uh, the wind was blowing, and I just felt this intense need to write this story. And uh, I, I wrote it, I, I let it go for a while, but it kept calling. And so, you know, if you care deeply about what you're writing about, the, the story will come. And just have faith, and uh, don't give up, and, uh, and of course, uh, it will come through in your writing. Mm -hmm. Oh, I echo that entirely. So thank you for saying that. Gabby. Well, mine is a little different. The thing I enjoy the most is the uh, is asking what if. Um, and sometimes I'm asking the wrong questions, but the what if instead of working in this bookstore, she owns the bookstore. And that means she's got more responsibility. And then, and I had already, I, I wrote this book twice. So <laughs> the first time was, it was okay. But then I had to go through and say, what if this would happen? That's my favorite. Uh, as for advice I give to aspiring writers, people that know me will know that I always say, write badly, and I'm very good at doing that, and aim low. And by which I mean, don't let um, the fear of doing it wrong stop you from writing. 
just start and write badly because you can always fix bad writing. You can't fix no writing. And the aim low is don't tell yourself that just because some famous author you've heard of says he works four hours a day every day of the week, you should do the same. I say, tell yourself you're going to write for half an hour, three times a week. And then if you exceed that, you'll be encouraged to do more. And mostly people can manage that kind of a thing. So although it seems like unlikely advice, people have told me that it works, works for me. Great advice and great um, stories from each of you. We only have a few minutes left, so I want to get a chance to see if there's another work in the works. Gabby, you've also written memoir. Gabby, do you have another book in the works? I do. Um, I'm working on a, on a sequel or a concurrent story. This one's set in a bookstore. The next one's in a library. Thank you, in Teresa. Teresa. I'm working a memoir about one extraordinary year of my life. Great. Lynn? I actually wrote uh, 800 words, and my uh, editor said, no one's going to read that. So I broke it in half. So I've got the next subsequent memoir uh, in the works, and it is also will be a love story and uh, a great escape for readers. Things to stay tuned for. Joe Iverson, tell us. So I've adapted um, Never a Girl, Always a Boy for the stage. And it's been ah. just an incredible experience trying to pull on the power of theater. And it's actually uh, going to open in Austin, Texas in mid-February and play for three weeks at a wonderful theater that focuses on work by and for underrepresented communities. And so mm. it's a fit this little black box theater with a hundred seats. And it's, it's, I'm so excited. And the director's holding auditions this Saturday. And a couple of months ago, we had an off-Broadway um, reading that got performed. And I've learned so much from that. And that's been inspiring me to rewrite. And I am hoping that this is something that will have a long life on the stage now. I am so excited and inspired by each of you and your stories. I, we have wonderful guests that have joined us today, so thanks to each of them. I want to thank Gabby Coatsworth with A Beginner's Guide to Starting Over, Joe Ivester with Never a Girl, Always a Boy, Teresa H. Jansen with The Ways of Water, and Lynn Spriggs O'Connor, Elk Love, a Montana memoir. Thanks for being with us here on The Launchpad. Thank you. Thank you. This episode is copyrighted by Grace Salmon and Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you for visiting with us on Launchpad.